Welcome to the Cultivating Leaders podcast from the Minnesota South District. I'm your host, Billy Schultz. Today, we continue with the second part of our conversation with Dr. Jim Marriott. We'll be talking a little bit about um, music and song selections in worship and some of the cultural contexts that come into play as we think about uh, the worship that we lead at our congregations and how we can um, indeed do uh, worship and discipleship together in our congregations. If you haven't yet listened to the first part of this interview, please pause here and go to that episode uh, so you have a, a better framework for what we're talking about here in the second part. You know, uh, music ends up being such a hot-button issue in some of the worship wars. And certainly there are plenty of shallow songs out there um, from various styles and genres. We have hymns in the Lutheran Service book right now that are um, not the most robust theological expressions of our faith. Um, And that's okay. And they have their place. And um, so do the hymns of Luther, and and this is why we have resources that are very diverse and that represent a number of different things, so that we can be enriched by the diversity that we have access to. Um, The same can be said for um, new songs that are written. Not every song is going to accomplish everything. The measure for a song, then, becomes how it is enlivening our performance of faith, how it is helping us to perform and to tell the story. And different songs function in different ways. Repetition um, has often been vilified um, in church music, especially in Lutheran conversations. You know, you think of uh, all of the um, kind of the the notorious nature of some of the, I, I've heard them called 7-Eleven songs, mm-hmm. you know, the um, seven words that you sing 11 or 11,000 times or something like that. And, and yet everyone seems to forget that repetition is the mother of learning. And I know more people that know those songs than that know the hymns of Luther and know them by heart, which is really a shame. Um, And yet we have to recognize the role of repetition and the power of repetition in church music. Mm -hmm. So that means... Well, you can even go to like examples of, um, you know, someone has Alzheimer's and you're able to sing a song that they know that they've sung a thousand times earlier in their life. They can't remember their family or their own name, but yet they've repeated these songs and it's in a part of their brain where they can pull it out. And it's just that power of that that connection, you know, whether even the Lord's prayer or, you know, a hymn or whatever, it's, it's that, that repetition has, has helped it take root. Exactly. And so leaning into repetition, but also being judicious then about what songs we choose to repeat and how we choose to repeat them. You know, on the other side, I, I don't understand why people don't love hymns. There's a lot of negatives there. Um, let me say it this way. I love hymns. And I love the depth of the poetry and um, the depth of expression. And I have come to realize that I love them, though, because I have them memorized. When I encounter a new hymn, it takes me four or five times of singing it and performing it before I have internalized it in a way that I'm really um, in rhythm with what it's saying and how it's forming me. And so the, that need for repetition is really important 
And hymns, um, while they are wonderfully deep and profound, if they are not repeated um, very intentionally, they don't have the same effect as um, uh, a song that may be simpler but more repetitive. So for me, the answer musically is to use a variety of resources and a variety of types of and genres of songs, some that are repetitive, some that are deeper, but then you choose to repeat more often. And uh, I, I find that our students and the um, members of the churches where I've served really respond to that type of um, intentional discipleship, um, especially through music. Um, you know, and there's much more to be said about all of that, but that's just one example of how um, uh, we can make some assumptions that things are inherently good or inherently bad when really there is um, a kind of a spectrum of good and bad that exists through a variety of resources. And even good and bad themselves are hermeneutically derived um, through our various understandings of what our, you know, anchors of orthodoxy are in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a very complex issue, which makes sense because we've spent a lot of time fighting about it. Uh, my goal is to get us to reorient the conversation around the points where we agree so that we can build even more and lean into this idea of living out our faith in the world. One place where almost all worship trajectories are aligned right now, and this is in a negative way, is in what I was saying before, this compartmentalization of Sunday morning at 11 o'clock and the daily life. You know, many of our stereotypical, now making a lot of generalizations here, many of our stereotypical um, uh, traditional churches, if you want to call them that, uh, are ones that kind of uh, they have this idea of equipping um, and they they see Sunday morning as the destination spot for equipping the saints for 24 seven ministry you know so like you, you it's kind of an oasis idea mm-hmm. that you know you come and you're filled here and then you go out and it's just horrible for you know the other, you know, uh, the rest of your time during the week. And then you come back and you get this one hour on Sunday where it's really, really great. And then you're just on your own the rest of the week. Or it's and, kind of like a gas gas station. Exactly. Your car's on empty. You need to fill or, it up. Exactly. Yes. Um, and, you know, uh, I've heard it, you know, preached as an empty sack idea, you know, that you come and you fill up your sack and then you go through your week and you empty your sack. And, um, there is some beauty to that idea because when we come together as Christians at 11 o'clock on Sunday or whenever we come, something very profound is happening then. We are participating in faith with one another in a way that is designed to be um, encouraging and uplifting where we rehearse and practice and uh, live out the promises of God through Christ by the Spirit, um, in word and sacrament. Like this is, this is, it's a hot spot for what we are doing as Christians. At the same time, it is connected with our daily life and we can't lose that connection. And we especially can't just see 11 o'clock on Sunday morning as the place for equipping or the place where ministry is happening. Um, 
so, you know, you see that in a lot of traditional churches. As, and, you know, these are the ones I like to joke that, um, you know, uh, at least lovingly joke that they have their evangelism boards. You know, the second you create an evangelism board, you're basically re- relegating evangelism or discipleship uh, to a couple of people in the church instead of seeing it as what the whole church is about. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we have to always fight against that tension as we live into doing the world rightly, Christians being the world done right. The other model that uh, is equally problematic on the other side is this idea that um, worship, 11 o'clock on Sunday, is the place for evangelism. That, I mean, that we're going to put all our eggs in that basket. We're going to invite all our friends um, and especially our unchurched friends to come to church because if we can just get them in the door and come to church, then they might hear the gospel Mm -hmm. Um, because this is where we're proclaiming the gospels, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Again, there's no continuity between 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and the daily life. We proclaim the gospel in every moment of our day. We are performing our faith. We are proclaiming the gospel. We are living out what we believe, teach, and confess and who we are. And the second we give up on that project and try and just get everybody in the door of the church so that we can evangelize them, I mean, it's it's a, a mismanagement of the idea of evangelism. And it stems out of a confession of faith that we honestly don't really ascribe to, and it's not scriptural. Um, we are much more interested in this story and how the church enacts the story um, for the sake of the world, that we would be the world done right, and that we might enliven the Christian witness so that we are proclaiming the gospel and doing discipleship and evangelism and mission and ministry in all times and at all places. And certainly, um, Sunday morning can be a place for people to come to know the promises and love of Jesus Christ, um, but they aren't the destination. Um, And even Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, to go back to that first equip model, is not the destination. Rather, what I'd like to see us grow to as a church is Sunday morning, instead of being a destination, being the rehearsal space. And as a musician, this, you know, rehearsal is a a sacred word for me because it embodies the process of learning and doing. Um, Performance is uh, um, often seen as the end of the process. But performance and rehearsal are ideally intertwined in this process of becoming um, as a musician. You know, so when I'm rehearsing a piece, I'm preparing for a performance, but both rehearsal and performance are my embodiment of that piece. The same with this story. We come together on Sunday morning to rehearse the promises and faith, uh, the promises of faith that we have. And that rehearsal together as community with Christ at the center, receiving his gifts through word and sacrament for the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation of all who believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we do that, when we rehearse that, we are practicing how to do the world right. We are practicing so that we are prepared to enact those same rituals, those same behaviors 24-7. And this is where it all comes full circle 
um, in the, the course of social sciences and ritual theory that our faith is not what we think or believe. Our faith is what we enact. We feel our way through the world much more than we think our way through the world. So we must orient our feelings, uh, orient our habits, our desires, and this is what James Smith says in his books, um, in his series on, you know, desiring the kingdom, imagining the kingdom, awaiting the king, and uh, one of his uh, simpler books, You Are What You Love. He has the series of books that kind of get at this, but that we would be orienting our behavior towards these goals rather than um, assuming that we can think our way to right behavior. So that's what this do model um, gives us, is a way of orienting our ritual behavior toward doing the world rightly. Mm-hmm. And uh, So when you look at that in the, in the context of like, you know, what would be considered a traditional liturgy, there are components of that that you can pull out and say, yeah, this is an everyday life sort of thing. So when you begin with your invocation, you're remembering your baptism, which is a daily thing that we do as Lutheran Christians. When you, when you do confession absolution, that's something you do on a daily basis, not only when you, between you and God, but with you and your loved ones, your coworkers, your friends, whomever you're in contact with, um, you know, you're reading scripture that, that, Ideally, is a it's a daily practice in the Christian life. Um, you know, Ex- the Lord's yeah. Supper reminds us that yeah, we are the body of Christ throughout the week, and that 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 presence of of Christ, you know, living in us, um, does impact the people who who need to hear about that forgiveness, life, and salvation. So uh, you know, we pray and worship, and prayer is, a, is such a necessary part of the Christian life. So it's just amazing to think about how those things inform that rest of the week and how we grow in that as disciples. Exactly right. And, and so even if you look at some of those things that you just listed off, those are, by and large, common practices across our denomination, regardless of worship style or format. And certainly there are um, variances in practices from different places. You know, not every service has confession and absolution, um, but every Christian community would be oriented around the idea that we are broken, sinful human people who need to experience um the ongoing and perpetual promise of redemption, and then to extend that forgiveness to one another as reconciliation since we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So we have these practices that prepare us for making that witness. Same thing with hospitality. You know, when we gather together as Christians on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, how are we treating one another? Um, how are we looking for the needs um, of the varieties of peoples that are there? Um, how are we attentive to the need of our youngest? How are we attentive to the need of our oldest? How do we practice First um, Corinthians 12, looking to the needs of those who are most vulnerable um, and the parts of the body that need the most care? How do we orient our community around being one body of Christ even though we are many members. You know, so we have this chance to practice all of these things. And this is where we're so similar. We all gather 
we all sing. We all live in this reconciliation and practice this reconciliation. We all live and practice our submission to the word of God. We all rehearse this, you know, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation for all who believe. You know, Lutherans are funny people um, because often our, you know, common table prayer, which it's only common to Lutherans, but our common table prayer (laughs) – is come Lord Jesus, be our guest and let these gifts to us be blessed. And it's amazing how we proclaim the presence of Christ as a perpetual event that graces our table every time we eat and gather together um, with one another. So that is in and of itself right there, an extension of what we confess in the Lord's Supper, Mm -hmm. um, that our fellowship is in the presence of Christ and we enact that presence together um, as the body of Christ, filled with the body and blood of Christ um, through the bread and wine by the power of the word. Um, so uh, we have all of these practices that um, come together to help us tell that story, to, um, to enact our faith. And this is where um, enculturation or contextualization is really important because so many of our practices then, you know, our hospitality rituals are culturally conditioned and they were in the Corinthian time too. This is what Paul's, you know, uh, critiquing the church for actually in 1 Corinthians 11 is their hospitality practice and their eating practices. So we have all of these practices that are culturally conditioned who, you know, uh, uh, you know, even uh, how we read the word and how it's preached and proclaimed, you know, the invention of electricity changed a lot of things for us. And now we can amplify things and we can do a podcast um, talking about these these different issues. You know, so we have all of these resources available to us, all of which are culturally conditioned, all of which have their strengths and weaknesses. There are strengths and weaknesses to this very recording that we're making. Um, There are strengths and weaknesses to using microphones in a a church building versus not using them. There are strengths and weaknesses to screens or to books or to any kind of media that we would use to – to help our communities navigate through our various rites and ceremonies. Um, So we have to be attentive to culture because there's not one practice that we enact as church that is not culturally conditioned. All of our practices are culturally conditioned. Mm -hmm. And all of our, and even more, we have to believe because of the power of Christ and, and how we have been redeemed. You know, if I, the chief of sinners, can be redeemed by the, the blood of Christ, all of culture is redeemable. That doesn't mean that all of culture is redeemed. That means that all of culture is redeemable, um, you know, and all of culture can be used by the church in an appropriate time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, At the same time, culture is not neutral, and you and I both know that, Um, and there are various levels of agendas that go um, in all of culture, Um, and this is, you know, whether you want to look at media 
or um, consumer capitalism or uh, any of our you know systemic practices, the issues that we um, continue to struggle with with um, racism and sexism and uh, ethnic difference and socioeconomic socioeconomic disparity, we have all of these issues that are systemic issues for the church. I mean, the church is not immune to consumer capitalism, and mo- I mean I don't know of one LCMS church. Um, that I have been part of that does not struggle with issues of, you know, uh, consumer capitalism. Like we are all struggling with that. That is systemic to the church in the United States. So we, we can't get away from culture. All culture is redeemable. Doesn't mean all culture is neutral. So the, the goal then is to make wise, uh, decisions in each context of how you enact this story and how you ritualize the enactment of this story. What songs do you choose? What behaviors do you practice? And that can look differently um, or look different in different places. Um, one of the most baffling comments I've I often come against is, you know, people that insist that, that they want the church to look like a Lutheran church. You know, their standard is, well, I want to walk in and I want to know it's a Lutheran church. And if you get them to explain um, what it is that they're talking about, it often doesn't have as much to do with our confession of faith and our embodiment of this divine narrative as it does with specific rites and ceremonies that have come to be commonly assumed to be Lutheran. But the Lutheran Church in Africa may not have these same practices, and they are just as bit uh, as as much Lutheran as we are. Um, and so we have to know what makes us Lutheran, and how that how our Christian identity is performed in the world. And it's a very um, tenuous conversation, and obviously has created a lot of conflict in the church over the last. I mean, really, since the invention of the church, you know, that we've had worship wars kind of the whole time. And if you know your church history, you know the different uh, worship wars that have happened throughout history. But it's always this um, interdependent relationship between church and culture that is redeeming culture and also recognizing that not all culture is – uh, neutral or no culture is neutral. And so we have to attend to cultural values while also clinging to the power of the gospel to bring forth change. That's very helpful to understand that. Um, because I think a lot of times we do look at culture. Um, I mean, especially if you think of like contemporary American culture as, uh, sometimes an enemy, uh, sometimes something to be completely avoided at all costs and, and and then there's this enmity um, that that maybe doesn't need to be there if we understand. No, there are some things in this culture that we can um, I'm not going to say adopt, but things that we can use in the context of telling God's story. Um, now that's really hard to do because there's a lot of things to filter through, and a lot of we have to be careful, you know, with our with our the lenses that we're using to to discern what we're using, but. But to understand that culture is not in and of itself the enemy, 
again, our enemy is, is Satan and our sinful flesh. And so to, to, to kind of be able to discern better, um, how do, how do you think the best ways are to do that, to do some discerning about what cultural relics we use and which ones we avoid in our worship Sure. So let's just lean into that, even just what you were just saying. You know, I, I often see the church functioning on the extremes of that tension, you know, and, and one extreme is that uh, uh, the church would say, well, the church has a culture and the church's culture is transcultural. So anyone who is Christian should have this culture. And and that is just not sustainable because there's no church culture. Rather, the church exists in culture. Now, the church may influence culture, and there may be rites and ceremonies that are um, more or less normatively assumed to be associated with the culture, but there is no church culture. And to proclaim that there is a church culture or a you know transcultural uh, nature or aspect to the church is just kind of irresponsible at the end of the day. But the other extreme on the other side is saying that, well, we have to, you know, uh, completely invest in culture and kind of sell out to the culture so that we can be completely relevant, uh, in, and authentic or whatever in, in what we're doing. And, uh, if we don't have that type of cultural resonance that is all in with the culture, then, you know, we'll never be understood and we'll never have any inroads. And oftentimes that extreme ends up uh, forgetting, you know, some of the, the chief performances of our faith and re- instead just kind of co-opting the gospel with, you know, um, our various practices. And this is where you get you know, kind of the prosperity gospel idea or, um, you know, some of the influences of the mall or other, you know, uh, other ways that we gather together, yeah, that, celebrity culture that exactly sometimes right. exists among among some Christian uh, groups, and, and among you know, I mean, the the beauty of mega churches are that there's lots of people going to church, and that's wonderful. One of the scary things about mega churches is that they're often founded on one charismatic dyma- dynamic person, and when that person leaves, um, or then, falls or something, right, gets the caught whole in a scandal. Is, Yep. And, and so, you know, we do have this celebrity culture, even among our pastors, um, that is really very difficult. So, so that, you know, getting away from those extremes and trying to get into the middle of, um, you know, well, the church doesn't have a culture, the church participates in culture, but the church doesn't, you know, capitulate to culture, rather the church makes culture. And so if we can get you know, back to this idea, or not even back, but if we can lean into this idea that the church is creating culture, the church is the world done right, which means that we do adopt cultural practices that are contextual to our location, and yet we enact them from a Christian confession of faith. Um, You asked how to do that or what it looks like, and the best I can tell my students is that it's a mess. Um, it really is very messy. And if it was easy, then we'd have figured this out a long time mm-hmm. ago. So there's no real good answer except for you make the best decisions that you can 
in the places that you're called to serve. Um, I commend our, our students especially that they are called to be ritual stewards um, and to steward or to manage uh, communities' rituals. Uh, often our students, this is always very entertaining, you know, uh, our students, especially maybe our fourth-year students, will say, well, when I get out into my church, you know, uh, next year, I'm going to do it this way. Or when I get into my church, I want to do this. And I, 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 I always slow them down and say, no, it's not your church. It's the church's church. And you are called to manage and to steward the community's rituals. Um, and then they'll always come back and um, say, well, what if they're doing something that's unorthodox or that needs, needs to be changed right away? And that's when I'll play for them again the video of my daughter singing Holy Christ, the President of the World, Alleluia, because there are certainly lots of practices in our local congregations, just as there are lots of practices in our um, districts and synod-wide that are broken, and we are broken people. And yet we live out this very beautiful story that takes brokenness and makes um, uh, righteousness out of it, not by our work, but by Christ's work in us. So if we can, we can proclaim that, then even in our churches, we can steward these rituals in a way that teaches us, that aims our habits and behaviors towards performing this story. That's awesome. Yeah, so I think it's just really practical to look at, look at this whole topic um, you know, for, for people who are leaders in their churches, whether, you know, if you pastors or, uh, or, or lay people or other church staff that, um, you know, if, if you're concerned about what are we doing in our worship practices, you know, is what we're doing, um, orthodox enough, or is it, is it, is it doing what it's supposed to be doing in, um, discipling people? I think, you know, asking those questions, you know, how can we use this worship to equip people to live out their faith, in the other 167 hours of the week, how do we use these practices to tell God's story and, and just really start there? Um, you know, I encourage folks who, who, who have questions about that, um, you know, talk to one of us in the district office or, you know, talk to a brother or pastor and, and just, um, you know, work together on these things to, to figure out, you know, what, what is, what is our, our um, our worship saying about about who God is and what God is doing and has done in the world because um, I think that's a far better place to start to say well does my church need to start a contemporary service to reach our community or you know do we just need to stick with our our liturgical liturgical service because that's um, what we need to be doing as Lutherans um, but to take kind of a step back and look at more broadly what are we communicating in our worship? I think that's um, such a big takeaway. And it's, it's a paradigm shift, I think, for a lot of people because we've, we've been enculturated in the worship wars. Yes. Um, you know, if you've grown up in the LCMS, you, you've kind of been attuned to a lot of that. And, and to be able to step back and say, you know, maybe there's something different here um, that doesn't involve picking a side or um, fighting the same battles that others have fought. Um, but to really... Um, Look at look at a third kind of a middle way of, of approaching that. And I think you're you know as you speak to that middle way, um, the two things that you commended people to do are so helpful. You know the the first 
is to ask that question. Like if all of our worship conversations could be oriented around the question of how are you discipling people? How are you teaching people to live out their faith? You know, that it's not about, well, do we have, you know, this song or this style or this band or, you know, like all of those questions, the answers to those questions will come from asking the question, you know, how are you discipling people? And what do you want the world to look like? What do you want the community to look like? How is the church doing the world right? And the other thing you commended people, it's just so beautiful, is to talk to your um, sibling pastors, sibling church workers. We are a family together. We are the body of Christ. And we're in this together. We may not all be on the same team, I mean, we're on the same page, but we are on the same team. We are one body. Like, and, and so how do we live this out together? And that means that we are open to the you know, um, collaborations that we have with one another. So many churches are scared to ask other churches what they're doing because we try to compete with one another mm-hmm. instead of working together. And so many people are scared to criticize other places or don't criticize well, I mean, or I guess maybe critique versus criticize. You know, if we could critique one another lovingly as um, sisters and brothers in Christ who are working for the enrichment of each other and this project of discipleship, if we could do that, that would keep us from criticizing one another and just saying things and making assumptions that really don't hold up uh, when you try to work through something systematically. Um, so being together, working together, mm-hmm. being on the same team, even if we're not always on the same page, I think is really important. That's awesome. Well, Jim, thank you so much uh, for being with us today and for uh, walking us through uh, the connection between worship and, and discipleship. It was my pleasure, and I'd love to do this again. 